Queer coding is a term when a character in media is subtextually presented as not heterosexual or cisgender. The character's sexuality may not be explicitly confirmed in the work, but they can still be queer-coded through the use of traits and stereotypes that are assumed to be recognizable to the audience. This is especially common for villainous characters in Hollywood movies. While the protagonist is generally showcased as confident, masculine, grounded, and temperate, the antagonist is frequently given contrasting qualities such as vanity, foppishness, hypersexuality, loquaciousness, and effeminate cowardice. This characterization is tied to the Hayes Code. Starting in 1930, films were not allowed to overtly portray so-called perverse subjects, such as same-sex relationships. As such, filmmakers would often allude to homosexuality with narrative shorthand. Very few of the stereotypes associated with queerness originate in Hollywood movies, but queer coding in mainstream filmmaking was often the public's first exposure to such perceptions, and it has left a lasting impact and a number of ramifications. For millennials, the villains of Disney Renaissance films are often our first exposure to queer coding. However, for this episode, we're going to examine one of the earliest examples in Hollywood history, something that was made only three years after the Hayes Code was set in effect. This is The Invisible Man. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. Joining me on this episode is my sister Cheryl. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. And my brother Sylvan. Hello. Okay, uh, this is your first view for The Invisible Man. I believe I watched this with you, Sylvan, at least once. Yeah, I think we did it not this past Halloween season, but the one before. So this was only my second viewing ever. I'm closing in on my 100th episode for this, and it felt a little odd to not do a Universal Monster movie because this particular mega franchise is pretty important to me, being, being a big old nerd and doing a horror movie like every other episode. So at some point we had to do one of these, and Cheryl's stipulation was that we could pick whatever we wanted except The Mummy because she thinks The Mummy is boring as shit. It is boring as shit. <laughs> Still haven't seen The Mummy, so no comment. You were a little reluctant to do The Invisible Man because you're only familiar with the 2020 remake. <laughs> but we will get to that. And, uh, yeah, let's plow into the plot of this thing. Uh, we open in the English village of Iping, uh, where a mysterious stranger swathed in bandages and sporting dark goggles comes in from a snowstorm and takes a room at the Lion's Head Inn. He is very curt, demanding solitude for scientific experiments. The innkeeper, Mr. Hall, is sent by his wife after the stranger falls behind on his rent and is just generally making a huge mess with his little chemical experiments and he's always cursing and throwing stuff around and driving patrons away from the bar. Messes up her nice china. Yeah. However, when confronted, the furious stranger throws Hall down the stairs, which gives him a big old concussion. He's wearing head bandages for the rest of the movie. This leads to a confrontation with the police and some angry villagers. The stranger shocks them by removing his bandages and goggles, revealing that he's invisible. Laughing maniacally, he removes the remainder of his clothes, shirt last, <laughs> he's Winnie the Pooh drives off the mob and flees into the countryside. We soon learn that the stranger is Dr. Jack Griffin, a brilliant chemist who discovered the secret of invisibility by studying monocane. Flora Cranley, Griffin's fiancée and the daughter of Griffin's employer, Dr. Cranley, begins looking into Griffin's long absence. Cranley, along with his assistant, Dr. Kemp, who is hitting on Flora while she is having a breakdown over the loss of her fiancée. Yeah, Kemp's not a smooth operator, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a bit of a backstabbing douche. More on that later on in the movie. 
They search Griffin's laboratory finally and discover that he's been ingesting formulas containing monocaine. This is con- uh, injecting under the skin. Oh uh, yeah. This is concerning since monocaine injections have recently driven lab animals incurably insane. Griffin next appears you know, sort of, at Kemp's house. He is, falsies, don't worry. Yeah, he is now convinced that he can use his invisibility to conquer the world, and he forcibly conscripts Kent to assist him. Humoring Griffin, Kemp drives him to the inn to retrieve his notebooks. Well, it's more like he seems almost like a hostage. Like, he knows he's made some regrettable life choices, and he's in this. I'm gonna wash my feet and clean under my fingernails. <laughs> Yes, Griffin gives a very long monologue about how he can conquer the world with his invisibility and all the precautions he needs to take in order to keep from being discovered by the police since his presence will be revealed by, say, rain or snow or fog. And considering that he's in England, that's a bit of a concern. (laughs) And also, he can't make his clothes invisible. So whenever he has to commit his invisible crimes, he's got to be naked. He's also got to make sure that he's finished digesting anything he chooses to eat. Yes, that is also in the source novel. We'll be talking about the source novel's influence on the film and the after bits. Griffin overhears a skeptical police officer conducting an inquiry inside, and enraged by the officer's dismissals, assuming he, you know, he thinks it's a hoax, Griffin kills him and then goes on a little spree where he's wreaking havoc in general. Yeah, we'll be getting into uh, Claude Rains' maniacal performance later on. Kemp reaches out for Cranley for help and then summons the police. Flora convinces her father to let her come along, which momentarily pacifies Griffin. He remembers that he has a fiancé. However, when he learns of Kemp's betrayal, he vows to murder him at 10 o'clock the following evening. After Griffin escapes, the the police have surrounded him and doing like sort of a Red Rover arm-locking thing. (laughs) Griffin charges through, tackles an officer, steals his pants... And then you get a you get Cheryl's favorite shot, which is just a pair of trousers skipping merrily as Griffin sings, Here we go gathering nuts in May. Yeah, after that, Griffin goes on a killing spree, culminating in him causing the derailment of a train, meaning that the invisible man has by far the highest body count of any universal monster. The police offer a reward to anyone who can think of a way to catch Griffin, which, you know, they later describe the suggested methods as some are stupid, some of them are clever, none of them are possible. A thousand pounds, Ryan. A thousand pounds. Yeah, they up the ante to 2,000, but then dial it back when somebody actually does catch him. We'll we'll get to that. Uh, Assuming that Griffin is determined to fulfill his promise to kill Kemp, the chief detective uses Kemp as bait for a series of clever traps, which Kemp is not crazy about being, you know, Kemp. Kemp sucks. He does suck. I maintain it's really creepy that he has a portrait on his mantelpiece of somebody else's fiance, and in the picture she's looking over her shoulder with a wet face. (laughs) (laughs) And Griffin seems to barely notice, even though he's in the room with that portrait right there. And it's not small. (laughs) Maybe he also suffers from face blindness, along with his invisibility. He did forget he had a fiancé for a while. The chief detective suggests that Kemp uh, just sort of smuggle his way out of the police station that he's being sequestered into while wearing a a uniform and then, you know, get in his car and drive off, hide out in the mountains until they catch Griffin. But Griffin had been hiding in the backseat of Kemp's car the entire time. 
He's very uncomfortable and also naked. <laughs> he overpowers Kemp, ties him up in the front seat, and sends the car over a cliff with Kemp inside. The car instantly bursts into flames and explodes. <laughs> that trope is older than you think it is. Another snowstorm forces Griffin to take refuge in a barn. A farmer discovers movement in the hay, and the barn is soon surrounded by cops who set fire to it. They'll give him a thousand pounds, though. Only if it works. Yeah, they stipulate that they'll only give him the reward money if they actually get Griffin. Fortunately for the farmer, Griffin flees, leaving tracks in the snow. Chief Detective shoots and mortally wounds Griffin. At the hospital, a dying Griffin asks to speak with Flora. He admits to her that he meddled in things that man must leave alone. And then he becomes visible as he dies. And that is the film. Alright, the development of this film. After the success of Dracula, The Invisible Man was quickly uh, suggested as a follow-up. However, the next project wound up being Frankenstein. While that was shooting, Universal bought the film rights from H.G. Wells for $10,000. For Wells stipulated that he would get veto power over the script. This ended up being a big old pain in the ass for Universal later on. <laughs> James Whale was approached to direct after Frankenstein proved to be a massive smash, and Boris Karloff was slated to play Griffin for similar reasons. Whale was afraid of being typecast as a horror director, but joined the project after the failure of The Impatient Maid in his next film. The script for the film went through many revisions. Early drafts up the violence, had the invisible man fight a giant octopus for some reason, and there was also a version that was set on Mars. Whale himself wrote a draft of the script, which combined the Invisible Man's plot with that of Phantom of the Opera and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, with an undercurrent of skepticism of religious authority. More on that later. Wells rejected that out of hand, and Whale left the project again in a huff for a bit. It's a lot to put in one movie, and it's like, what, an hour and a half? Not even? Yeah, not even. Uh, the final script was written by John Weld. After browsing through the many prior attempts, he was particularly amused used by the Mars version. Wells asked for a copy of the source novel. Universal did not have one. <laughs> Despite paying 10000 for the rights. That's Disney bullshit right After tracking it down in a used bookstore, Weld found that the story translated to film pretty seamlessly and wrote a fairly loyal adaptation. Wells gave it his blessing. Compa figure. <laughs> yeah, compared to most of the other Universal monster movies, Dracula and Frankenstein in particular, The Invisible Man is pretty much the H.G. Wells novel. Even the bit where he takes off his shirt last. And then the bit where he's wearing the fake wig under his bandages for some reason. I don't understand! It's not like you're supposed to see his hair! Well, he's, he's not trying to... It's an attempt to make people not notice that he's invisible, so I don't know, maybe they're too distracted by the false nose and the bad hair to notice that there's nothing between the cracks of the bandages. He was wearing a hat! <laughs> <laughs> this is Cheryl's stumbling block here. Boris Karloff exited the project after a fight with Whale. Lots of people have speculated that Karloff was reluctant to be in the movie since, you know, he wasn't going to be in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> However, Whale didn't like Karloff's accent. He found that his lisp would be distracting and it would be hard for the audience to understand his lines, which is interesting considering that Karloff spent much of his career cashing checks with that very distinctive voice of his. Yep, uh, even though he is not perhaps most famous for the Grinch, that's definitely where our minds all go. And he was also a horror anthology host a la Rod Serling or the Crypt Keeper. And, you know, Monster Mash is a Boris Karloff impression. Colin Clive was considered to play Griffin. 
Clive was Henry Frankenstein in the Frankenstein movies, and he was tempted for a bit, but he opted to take a planned vacation to England instead. Whale stumbled across Claude Rains when he heard Rains do a screen test for an unrelated movie in another room. While an experienced stage actor, Rains had only appeared in one film prior to The Invisible Man, a 1920s Build Thy House, which I believe is lost, and The Invisible Man is his first sound film. Rains was chosen because he spoke with clarity, according to Whale, which is interesting because, according to Sylvan, Rains had a speech impediment as a child and was very self-conscious about his voice. Yeah, um, I had seen an interview with his daughter where she talked about it, and um, also just the, the Cockney accent was also a stumbling block that came up in the featurette that we just watched now, too. So he had actually done some voice training to overcome all that, and his daughter and himself were always kind of confused about how particularly popular his, his voice was among his fan base, because, you know, for him it was in the way for a good chunk of his life. Yeah, aside from the last 20 seconds of the film, Griffin is either in invisible or covered in bandages for the entire movie. Uh, Reigns was not told about this beforehand, <laughs> but he got some idea of what he was in for when the studio started taking cast molds of his head. Uh, another thing that his daughter mentioned in the featurette was that he was severely claustrophobic and that the, the molds bit that they used for the end feature was a, a form of torture for him. I, I can see how his discomfort might have informed his performance. <laughs> We'll get into that when we're discussing the cast. Gloria Stewart was one of Whale's regulars. She was cast to play Griffin's fiance, Flora. She found Reigns to be stuffy and difficult, and Whale had to keep telling him to stop crowding Stewart out of the shots. <laughs> Whale also had to tell Reigns that it wasn't really possible for him to employ more facial acting since he is the titular character in the film called The Invisible Man. <laughs> Universal's press releases lied about the film's special effects. They claimed that they are all done with mirrors. <laughs> sure. <laughs> in actuality, backgrounds were covered in non-reflective black velvet while Reigns was wrapped in the same fabric under his clothes and over his face. With this negative, a print was made along with a duplicate print for the mats. With an ordinary printer, a composite was made with the positives of the background and the normal actions. The mats were then used to max the areas where the invisible man moved. Uh, the toughest part was apparently matching the lighting of the visible clothing with the general lighting all around. This was at least a decade before green screen technology was invented and a few decades before it became practical for mid-budget movies like, you know, this. That's really impressive. Touch-ups were done frame by frame with a brush and opaque dye in order to correct, you know, minor inconsistencies. For the scene where Griffin removes his bandages, Reigns hit his head under his jacket collar and pulled bandages off a thin wire frame. Uh, other scenes uh, with moving props were done with wires pulled by booms and dollies. The effects cost $328,000, by far the most expensive element of the film. You're impressive, though, especially the snow footprint scene. Yeah, I'd say everything holds up really well, too. Like, it doesn't look silly, unless it's trying to be silly, like the marching pants. Yeah, we'll be uh, getting into certain other aspects of gay subculture when we get to the thematic bits. I think marching pants is part of it. <laughs> <laughs> of course, marching pants is part of it. I knew you were going to be into that. I know you. At first, the cast. Uh, first and foremost, Claude Rains is Dr. Jack Griffin. Woo! Yeah, he is phenomenal in this. He carries the movie. I think most of the other characters are either stock roles or just characters who are just kind of bland, boring. Reigns is there to chew scenery, and that's what he does. 
Mark Hamill, I discovered, cites Reigns and uh, Invisible Man as the key influence on his performance of the Joker in Batman the Animated Series. And that tracks. Yeah, particularly in the laugh. Yep. <laughs> the scene where he's just wearing a shirt. <laughs> yeah, no, the, you, you mentioned that and everything clicks. That Yep, that makes perfect sense. Getting back to Reigns' daughter, this is the first Claude Reigns film seen by his daughter. Uh, he took her to a theater doing a screening around 1950. He was recognized at the gate, but declined an offer to see the movie for free. As they were watching the film, Reigns began telling anecdotes to his daughter about the production. The audience soon noticed that Claude Reigns was there talking about the making of the movie and began ignoring it in favor of listening to Reigns. How cute and yeah, the next Little per- did he know that that was going to become, like, a thing that you could cash in on by doing. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a, it's a shame that he never got to do that bit. And then the next person, uh, in terms of importance, I would say is Gloria Stewart as Flora. She talked about this film quite a bit as one of her most well-known ones, her second most well-known one. <laughs> she did not enjoy her time at Universal. She considered Universal to be a cheap and trashy second-rate studio. She thought the dressing rooms were shabby. The budgets were really low. She thought she was in a crappy B-movie. This is something that keeps coming up. When you talk about actors in Universal movies, they did not take their performances seriously. They did not take the film seriously. They did not think anyone would care about this five years after it came out, let alone 50. Most of Stewart's film performances were pre-code, but she did do a few Shirley Temple musicals after this. She largely abandoned movies to do regional theater and printmaking for the majority of her life, but she was lured back to movies for a few bit parts in the 1980s, and then famously played the elderly Rose Dawson in the framing sequences in Titanic. Yep, where, as you mentioned earlier, hung up on another Jack. Yeah, yeah, hung up on another Jack. Can't get away from that, Jack. She's playing a pretty stock role here. Yeah, I gotta say, I like her performance in Titanic better than in this one. Titanic gives her more to do. She did say that she liked working with uh, Whale. She believed that James Whale was a gentleman. He was very charming and funny and didn't take himself overly seriously, which she considered appropriate for a trashy Universal B-movie. A lot of the other directors for Universal were a little self-important and overcompensating, apparently. Um, all's well that ends well with that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're just, you're just waiting for a window for that. <laughs> All right, the next person to bring up is William Harrigan as Dr. Kemp. <laughs> enjoyed his character, though. Yeah, he's such a little weasel. And what's interesting is that, you know, Griffin is this homicidal maniac, but he's just so likable as a melodramatic bad guy that you're just like, yeah, yeah, you kill the shit out of that camp douchebag. <laughs> the very scene where Flora is just, like, sobbing, like, I can't find my fiancé, where is he? And he's like, let me tell you about how I feel. And she's like, no, fuck off. <laughs> and he never brings it up again. I mean, we have Henry Travers as Dr. Cranley, another star character. He's Yeah, he's just kind of there. Oh, is that her dad? Yeah, that's the dad. I mean, he's, he's fine. He's not given anything to do, and then he doesn't and do it. And he doesn't do anything yeah. with it. Well, I mean, he wanted to save him. He was like, he was a good assistant. Oh, I only just... have two of those. <laughs> and I guess my daughter is somewhat fond of him. Yeah, you know how, how hard it is to find a chemist in whatever year this is supposed to be set in? <laughs> again that'll make him sane right that that'll counteract like any chemical brain damage that happened 
Uh, that, that's what they kept pinning their hopes on. And yeah, I do I do struggle to figure out when this is supposed to take place, because if it's when the novel is set, we're talking like the 1890s, but then you have that giant spotlight shining on the barn. And, you know, it takes place in the version of England where two-thirds of the people there have Californian accents, or they're doing a really, really bad version of a Cockney accent. Well, maybe it's like the weird, universal, specific version of Europe that exists in the Wolfman movies, where this is fantasy Europe, it's not real Europe. I mean, there are a lot of mustachioed police officers, and one of them actually says, what's all this here, then? Uh, the last person I want to mention is Uno O'Connor as Jenny Hall. She's the innkeeper's wife. She was most, delightful. Most of her dialogue is shrieking. <laughs> <laughs> Great facial expressions, too. She is another one of Wales regulars. He kept finding an excuse to put her in everything. She's a character actress playing more or less the same character in everything. She's also playing a very similar role in Bride of Frankenstein. These scenes were particularly hard because James Whale kept cracking up and ruining the takes because he just found her shrieking delightful. So did you. You cracked up every time she said anything. Oh, honestly, yeah. And she kept mugging for the camera. It was so cute. He's invisible, he is. (laughs) (laughs) I promised my husband that if he ever got hurt, that would be my reaction. I love too that like the nicest room we have for rent in the end has like this massive portrait of her hanging up on the wall. Right. <laughs> Making like not at all an elegant looking face. I guess you ruined it. You threw a chemical on it. He's a terrible tenant. I mean, yeah, he's a terrible guy overall. That's why he's the monster. All right, the reception of this film and its follow-ups. The film got a great deal of praise, largely for its innovative visual effects. Nothing quite like what you see in this film had happened before. Box office data from this period is scant, but it is possible that it outgrows both Dracula and Frankenstein. However, it took a very long time for Universal to do another one. In 1940, after the success of Son of Frankenstein, Universal rushed into production The Invisible Man Returns. This is only sort of connected to the first film. Vincent Price is playing a descendant of Griffin who is making himself invisible in order to get away from a crime he didn't commit. And he's almost driven mad, but they get to save him in the end. The most memorable scene is probably when he steals clothes off a scarecrow and apologizes to the scarecrow because it's cold in winter and he's he's making the scarecrow naked. Yeah, it has Vincent Price when he's like 25 or so, and it's very disarming to see how young he is. And he's not quite Vincent Price yet. That vocal affect isn't in place. It's not an especially good movie, unless you're really interested in seeing super young Vincent Price sort of forming a screen persona. It's like only his fourth movie. And boy, howdy am I! (laughs) The very same year, Universal put out The Invisible Woman which had no connection to either of the films. It tries to be a romantic comedy, and it doesn't really work. It sounds like an 80s movie. It kind of is. And it has a very interesting cast, because Margaret Hamilton's in it. Yeah, and um, who else did they say? We just watched the future. Yeah, John Carradine's like the, the goofy mad scientist who uses like electricity to turn the women invisible. Oh no, wasn't it Barrymore in this one? Oh yeah, yeah. In the next one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carradine's in the next one. This is this, this one's Barrymore. However, Shemp Howard is in it. And it's the other one you mentioned. Yeah, because some gangsters want to steal the invisibility formula, and Shemp Howard's one of the gangsters, and it is really, really profoundly weird to see him not playing a stooge. 
just all those three together are they ever on screen at the same time that must be such a trip <laughs> now, the most interesting of the sequels is probably Invisible Agent. This one is a war propaganda film that features a descendant of Griffin fighting the Axis powers with his invisibility. Sneaks behind enemy lines and does, you know, spy stuff. I wouldn't say it's a great film, but it is a weird curio of the period. Also, what uh, the little featurette doesn't mention is that Peter Lorre, he plays the uh, principal bad guy. He's a Japanese man. Oh, dear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I I didn't know that he was supposed to be Japanese until he's like wandering around in a kimono with a samurai sword. Did he paint his face comments? No, I, I think they just assumed that, you know, since he's a foreign man, he's from Austria after all, and he kind of has sunken eyes, that's close enough. Also, Laurie spent a goodly amount of his career playing a Charlie Chan type character who solved mysteries with a really affected accent, except he's, you know, Japanese instead of Chinese. I can't imagine either of those working on him, actually. No, it doesn't work even remotely. And then the last one in the series is The Invisible Man's Revenge, which is pretty unremarkable. They tried to convince Claude Rains to come back, but it was in 1944. He had done Casablanca and Robin Hood, so he, he was too good for crappy Universal sequels. Now, I still got him for Wolfman, though. And then we have Abin and Costello meet the Invisible Man, which came out in 1951. Vincent Price had a brief cameo as the Invisible Man in Abin and Costello meet Frankenstein. <laughs> However, Arthur Franz plays the character in this one. It's okay if you like Abin and Costello movies. It's not as good as the Frankenstein one. The Invisible Man is noteworthy for not having a Hammer remake in the 1950s. They did just about all the other ones, but they made their movies even more cheaply than Universal, so I guess they couldn't afford to do invisible effects. I'm not going to go into all of the various other Invisible movies, because there are a lot of them. I know Charles Partial's of The Hollow Man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Kevin Bacon one. Oh, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, it's just like, why? So, so very partial that she can't even remember that she likes it. I'm sorry. I've had a wine and a half tonight. So. In 2016, Universal proposed a remake with Johnny Depp playing Griffin. This was supposed to be part of their proposed Dark Universe, which they were going to compete against the Marvel movies by assembling an Avengers of Universal Monsters. Uh, no, that wasn't related. Oh, okay. I was like, oh my god, that would have been so weird. The underworld version of the Invisible Man. Yeah, this ended up tanking after the 2017 version of The Mummy starring Tom Cruise completely bricked at the box office. And they're mm -hmm. like, oh, nobody wants to watch this Tom Cruise mummy movie. I don't think a Johnny Depp Invisible Man movie is going to work out. I don't think a Russell Crowe, Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde movie is going to work out. Just scrap this all. So... They downplayed it and contacted Blumhouse in order to, like, subcontract a series of Universal Monsters remakes, which started in 2020 with the Invisible Man remake. <laughs> I don't want to get too much into that one because I think that could be an episode on its own, mm -hmm. but it is very good and it is very hard to watch. I'll never see it again. Yeah, this one reimagines Griffin as an abusive man stalking his ex with an invisibility suit. And it is a metaphor for, you know, gaslighting and abusive relationships. And yeah, it's rough. The tension is so palpable. 
I still haven't seen it, but from you guys talking about it, it does make me think a little bit of the Batman the Animated Series episode where the, the guy steals the invisibility suit from his scientist boss so that he can harass his ex-wife and kidnap his daughter. Yeah, it's kind of like that, but worse. Anyways, Blumhouse is currently, as we're recording this, working on their own little takes on Dracula, Bride of Frankenstein, and yeah, they're doing Bride of Frankenstein first. Alright, without other way, let's talk about themes. As I alluded to in the introduction, queer cinema. <laughs> Griffin is a fey, pretentious dandy. He is one of the earliest examples of queer coding in Hollywood filmmaking, as I mentioned already. Now, it is very possible that the filmmakers are not consciously aware of what messages they're sending when they portray male villains as feminized popinjays, but that form of shorthand didn't come from nowhere. I find a lot of parallels between old-school fey-coded gay supervillains, you know, usually played by James Mason or Peter Lorre, to, say... Saturday morning cartoons from the 1980s. Now, as I mentioned in previous episodes, most notably the My Little Pony that I did with Sylvan, in the 1980s, the FCC was deregulated to allow cartoons to become glorified toy commercials. However, other regulations were tightened more so. For instance, heroic characters had to be moral paragons, meaning that most of them were pretty boring. Yep. So the uh, writers got to focus more on the bad guys who could be as silly, over-the-top, or as sassy as they wanted them to. This is why the misfits are more and more interesting than the holograms. And this is why Skeletor is more beloved than He-Man. Yeah! <laughs> and I think that there is a clear bridge between Griffin and Skeletor here. <laughs> As a number of memes shared amongst our peer groups who point out, if they were trying to make us scared of gay people with Disney Renaissance villains, it didn't work. It just made us gay for super villains. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Also, I think we can mention Batman villains. Oh, yes. So many iterations of Batman where he is just plain and wooden, and the villains are all played by slumming A-list Hollywood icons who are just given all the best lines and are overemphasizing every syllable. Caffeine will kill you. And this brings me up to a related subject, camp. Camp is one of those things where its definition is often very nebulous and gets away from people, but... But you do know it when you see it. Yes. Uh, I would describe it as an aesthetic style that revels in bad taste, irony, and deliberate artifice. This is very closely connected to gay culture. And that, if anything, that's an understatement. The Invisible Man is an early example of a Hollywood movie with a campy subtext, uh, though this would continue onwards, particularly in postmodern filmmaking, uh, especially when the pop art movement started up in the 60s, and the films of John Waters in particular. Director James Whale would take this even further in Bride of Frankenstein, particularly with its central villain, the very, very swishy Dr. Petraeus. Which brings me to another subject, uh, the gay villain as the sympathetic outsider. Getting back to that old Disney Renaissance vibe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, if nothing else, he's just way more interesting than any other character in the very much so. James Whale himself was a gay man. His position in Hollywood allowed him to be about as uncloseted as a gay man could be in the 1930s. However, this was still the time period that it was, and there were anti-sodomy laws on the books. He very well could have been arrested for it. However, since he was making money for an influential Hollywood studio, Universal would routinely pay off the police in order to look the other way. This was a common practice amongst most of the film studios back in those days. So there, you know, 
know, money-making Hollywood weirdos could smoke reefer and have sex with people of the same gender without getting hassled. Yeah, they weren't really going to crack down on that stuff until the 50s. And even then, most infamous example of this coming up is when Errol Flynn was arrested and put on trial for statutory rape. Apparently, the studio started missing some payments and they wanted to make an example out of somebody. And they picked Flynn because Flynn was the biggest star during that period. And while I'm getting a little off topic here, the trial was one of the more infamous farces of its day because all they did was very predictably take the teenage girls that he had sex with and just slut-shame them on the stands. Uh, yeah, in addition to gross stuff like that, they also let James Whale be who he was, which is nice in retrospect to a point. However, that did mean that the studio sort of had a hold over him, which the featurette alluded to, but not as clearly as it could have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Frankenstein, and especially its sequel, are often scrutinized through queer cinema theory for this reason. The concept of a misunderstood monster unfairly accosted by a society that instinctively despises it is an easy metaphor to uh, apply to the LGBTQ plus experience. The Invisible Man is a queer-coded villain who relishes inflicting harm upon the world, and he sees his powers as a medium for impotent rage. And this especially comes to the forefront when he can't cure himself, and he can't properly mask who he is anymore. Logically, his girlfriend, his fiance would have totally helped him. Like, if you think about, like, how, like, eager she was to get to him, she would have been the perfect partner for him. But he picked the dude. Yeah, and the dad, too, like, had all of the power and the equipment and everything and, like, no strong personality. You know, the um, invisible man thinks he needs to isolate himself and get all of his work done. But, yeah, if he'd gone to a support system, he would have been fine. Or if he was still hell-bent on conquering the world and crowning himself Emperor Invisible Man the First, <laughs> Flora would have been his Harley Quinn. Yeah, 100%. She would have totally cleaned up his fingernails. <laughs> no careening off of the side of the cliff in a car for her. Yeah, one more subject I wanted to bring up, which is more pertinent for the Frankenstein movies, but is brought up here, is that undercurrent theme in most mad scientist films from this period of men meddling in affairs that were beyond their ken. Which, you know, very common in gothic romance novels and fed into early horror films. I am kind of sick of it. I would really love for one of these movies to just have, like, a guy who is meddling with forces he can't understand and the characters are trying to warn him away from it. But it turns out that he's totally right. He winds up making the world just, like, objectively better as a result. And all of the fundamentalist people telling him to fear God have to eat some crow. (laughs) Like, just once. Probably like a, it's gotta be like a Douglas Adams novel. Yeah, I, you know what? Stephen King has some interesting ideas about religious people. <laughs> Maybe he could get started on it. I don't know, Well, he could bring in his son to write an ending. His son can write endings. Oh, no, I was I meant like in this plot. Oh, all right. You can't have a Stephen King novel without a writer who maybe was an alcoholic at one point. All right, well, that's everything in my notes. Is there anything you'd like to add about The Invisible Man before we sign off? I can't remember the song. Here we go gathering nuts in May. Nuts in May. Nuts in May. May. (laughs) All right, I think that's everything, then. (laughs) Good night.